Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 95 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app right now so that you don't miss a single episode. Some brilliant guests lined up for you in the coming weeks. And today's guest, well, he's another legend, one of the great guitar virtuosos of our time, a magical musician whose story is insane, frankly. From having guitar lessons with Joe Satriani as a young boy, to enrolling at the Berklee College of Music, to working with Frank Zappa as a teenager, then just a couple of years later, building his own recording studio with his own bare hands, recording his debut solo album, and then creating his own record label to release it. Then he joined former Rainbow singer Graham Bonnet in Alcatraz, then being Dave Lee Roth's guitarist when he left Van Halen, then joining Whitesnake to make a platinum-selling record, then releasing his own incredible albums, having his own instantly recognisable guitar, and having an iconic part in a Hollywood blockbuster movie as well. I mean, honestly, he's pretty much done it all. I am, of course, talking about the amazing Steve Vai, and this is one heck of a deep dive interview. 
But first, a quick thank you to everyone that's been in touch in the last few weeks. A lot of love for the last two episodes. Crazy amount, actually. The Hendrix Experienced episode with rock stars telling their personal stories of the great man has had some brilliant listening figures. And if we go back one week further, episode 94, the Tony Carey interview, former Rainbow Man himself, well, that is now the most listened to episode of 2023 so far, which is brilliant. And the video that I put on YouTube as well has received well over 85,000 and views, which is phenomenal. So a big thanks to all the kind words that have come in over the last couple of weeks with comments about the shows. It really is fantastic to see them all. So thank you so much. And all the way from around the world as well, messages from Australia and Singapore, Canada and Sweden, and of course from the UK and US too. So a big thanks to all. If you haven't checked out the Vintage Rock Party YouTube channel yet, then make sure you do. Go and subscribe. It's completely free. And you get to see all these amazing guests that I've interviewed over the years. There's some fun videos on there. Plus a daily poll where I pose a teaser and thousands of you take part. 3,000 or so every single day. There's a great community growing on there. Great discussion to be had. So make sure you're not missing out. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube and hit subscribe. Right, on to today's interview then. Steve Vai, he answers everything so thoroughly. You get a real glimpse into the life and career of this exceptional musician. His thought processes, why he did certain things. He talks about the complexity of working with Frank Zappa and how much it took out of him. His business ethic on how he makes sure he's paid more than anyone else. He's honest about being the prima donna when joining Whitesnake. He talks about his solo records, his iconic custom guitar, Graham Bonnet, Dave Lee Roth and working in the shadow of Eddie Van Halen and so much more as well. I know you're going to love this one. So make sure that you're comfy. It gets deep and in-depth. So please enjoy my chat with the one and only... Steve Vai. Now let's start with uh, Frank Zappa. I mean, you're a huge fan of his already, weren't you? And uh, I saw that you said that your first record you bought was Yogi Bear and Friends, and the second was Frank Zappa. So let's start <laughs> yeah. with that because Frank Zappa's music is, well, certainly more complex than Yogi Bear. It's yeah. really unique, it's eclectic, it's complex, it's genre bending. So as a youngster, what was it about Frank Zappa that drew you in? The album cover. I, I was very young. Obviously, going from Yogi Bear to Zappa, I was there was a department store up the street from my house. And I remember I was I had to be a certain age before my parents would let me cross the main street by myself. So the day that I was able to cross the main street, I went up and I loved music, obviously. And I saw the Zappa album cover for Freak Out. And I didn't really know Zappa. And I, I got the record and I listened to it and um, I was stunned, you know, and it was just so different. It was just like a wall of odd, beautiful sound. But I didn't, I was very young, so I didn't really connect the artist, uh, Frank Zappa, with the record. I didn't, you know, I didn't really. And uh, it wasn't until some years later that my friend, turned me on to a Zappa song. It was from Bongo Fury. No, it was, uh, I think it was Uncle Meat, and the song was Electric Aunt Jemima. Yeah, and then that that started my real love affair with uh, Frank's music. That's where the connection came from. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of Frank, I mean, you actually got hold of his actual home phone number as well, didn't you, when you were a teenager? And you and you phoned it up expecting to speak to Frank. And I think it was you, his wife that you spoke to originally. But you, you kept calling yeah. and calling and things like that. And you, you eventually got to speak with Frank himself. He'd come back off the road or whatever. I mean, what do you remember yeah. about that conversation? 
he was in a very good mood and I was 18 and I was living, I was going to school at Berkeley and I used, I didn't even have a phone. I was using my friend's phone and he was very nice. You know, it, it, oddly enough, knowing Frank later, you know, when I got to know him and work with him, I thought it was very odd that he took that phone call from me because I was basically, basically just like, yeah, I'm just a fan. Uh, but I knew that he was an Edgar Varese fan. Edgar Varese was a composer and that he was looking for some scores. And it wasn't that easy to get scores back in those days, but the Boston Public Library had Edgar Varese scores. So I told him, hey, I've got some Edgar Varese scores I'd like to send to you, along with uh, a transcription of uh, some of your music, Frank's music that I transcribed. And he gave me his home address and I sent him that stuff. I did a transcription of the black page and I sent him a tape of my band. I snuck that in there. (laughs) Of course. And then he, I spoke to him again and he was very, very positive about the uh, tape and wanted to try me out for the band. But when I told him I was 18, he thought that was too young, but he, was impressed enough with the transcription that I did that he hired me to be a transcriptionist. Uh, he started paying me, I think it was $5 a page to listen to his music and write it down. And he sent me a big giant score called Mo and Herb's Vacation and also the actual music for the black page with a note that asked me to play it as fast as I can. So I made a tape of uh, myself playing the black page and I sent it to him. And the, the next thing I knew, I, the next time I had called him, I caught him in not such a good mood. <laughs> and uh, if Frank didn't want to talk, I mean, he was just like, there was just space. Uh, but then I saw this magazine interview he did in a San Francisco magazine. And he was talking about me. And the tape that I had sent him uh, of the black page. And I I couldn't believe it. I had never really even seen my name in print, you know, and there, there was Frank Zappa talking about me. It was kind of, it was really cool. So how much later was, was the, you actually joining the band? When, when did he decide that you're actually old enough to come and do this with us now? Well, he, he didn't. What happened was I, uh, the day after, a couple of days after my 20th birthday, I moved to California and I moved right down the street from him. <laughs> Not stalking him at all. <laughs> yeah. And I just started going up to the house. And, and once you start going up to the studio, you know, you just, Frank will just, if, if you have something to offer, he'll just suck you in and you end up recording all this stuff. And that's what happened. And that must have been kind of dream come true moment sort of thing for you, surely. I was scared to death. <laughs> I mean, it, it was all, I was very young and it, it just seemed surreal. Yeah. You know, next yeah. thing I know, I'm, I'm at, in Frank's studio and there's Vinnie Kaliuta and Terry Bozio and Tommy Mars. And I'm like, wow. And he's giving me all this wild music to record. It was fun because they were fun guys to hang out with. Yeah. You know, his Frank was just kind of amazing just to sit and talk with. He was a great conversationalist. He always had an opinion about things and he always um, gave you his attention. 
and he listened when you spoke. Okay. And he was always interested and interesting. So obviously at this point you were a fantastic guitarist already. You you had you had Frank spewing words of praise about you. So that was down. But what else did you learn from Frank? I mean, thinking of live shows, did you you learn anything about stage presence when you were touring with Frank or anything like that? Well, being uh, a musician in Frank's band required certain uh tools. And there wasn't a lot of it wasn't the kind of band you get into to learn how to perform, say. You you learn how to play high information music under pressure while laughing. <laughs> and you had to keep your attention on Frank at all times. I couldn't really play to the audience, you know, because Frank was conducting certain things. He at any time during the entire show, he could give you a signal. He had various signals he would give you that would mean do this in, in a song. You know, if he went if he went like this, that meant whatever you were playing, play it reggae. <laughs> or or he would go like this, and whatever you're playing, you gotta play it in five eight. Or he had this one really great one where he'd he'd walk around, he'd go like this. And that meant whatever you were doing, play it heavy metal. <laughs> Big balls, <Yep>. you know? <laughs> so you, you really had to keep your eye on Frank. And he, we did probably two shows a night most of the time with long sound checks where he would write and record. And then uh, he would, we had about 80 songs that you had to, have memorized and he would pick the set list. He would write the set list five minutes before the show. And it was different every single night. It was a real challenge for someone like me because I used to, for some reason I had a fascination with playing the very complex lines on the guitar, you know? Okay. So Frank finally had a guitar player that he could give all these uh, very challenging, dense, melodic uh, lines to. And they were all written. I mean, Sinister Footwear was like 20 pages of sheer terror. So probably about 60, 70% of those 80 songs were sheer terror. <laughs> and I had to practice them constantly because, I don't know, you know, the guitar is just, a hard instrument to play that stuff on. And the way my mind worked, you can't just learn something like that and then leave it for five days and then go, oh, okay, yeah, he's, he put sinister footwear on the set list. Let me play. You know, it didn't work that way. You had to play that shit all the time. So you wake up at 9 a.m. and you go to the airport and you fly to the gig and then you get from the car and you go directly to the the gig and you do a long sound check and then you have 45 minutes before the first show and then there's 45 minutes before the second show and by the time you get you know we got back to the hotel it was two o'clock one at one or two a.m and i had to practice because i don't know what songs he was going to call the next night 
So it, uh, you know, I deteriorated pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that sounds incredibly intense, especially for someone so young and, and fairly new to, to the music business world as well. And it's not a kind of regular set. You're going to play the same 12 songs in a night and you know what the encore is going to be. And it just sounds so, so challenging, but at the same time, an incredible grounding for you because nothing that kind of follows that could surely be anywhere near as difficult. No, nothing. There was nothing. There's nothing. I don't, I, I, I don't know if there's anything in the business like that <laughs> because Frank's music was so complex, but I loved it too, because Frank's music, I just loved it. You know, some of it is so uh, profoundly beautiful. Take a song like Sofa or Redunzo. These are beautiful melodies to play. And uh, I was young, so I had a lot of energy in a sense. You know, I could, I wasn't afraid of anything. I may have been a little intimidated and nervous and naive around Frank because he was Frank Zappa, but... <laughs> When it came time to play in the music, I'm like, okay, shovel it on, brother, because I got this. <laughs> Fantastic. I, don't know, I was really cocky and, yeah, really confident, brutally confident. And after a couple of years with with Frank and touring and, and living that kind of really intense lifestyle, you then went off and you built your own studio, didn't you, with your own bare hands, which is pretty incredible for your, your first solo record, Flexible. I mean, that's an incredible thing to do in, in terms of crafting your building as well. Yeah, that was a dream come true. Sometimes you don't recognize these things till later in life. But the real fascination for me in my career, since you have a kind of a some periods of time to look back at, I always lit up first and foremost with the idea of composing, writing music. I wanted to understand that language since I was four, five years old, you know. I wanted to own it. And I wanted to be able to wield it. And then after that, oddly enough, it was recording. Because I understood the, con you know, it's 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. I understood the concept of recording. But there was something about the process that fascinated me in my mind. And of course, there was the fascination with the guitar. But I never, I didn't consider playing the guitar because it, uh, it seemed so out of my reach. It was such a, 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 there was so much of a mystique to it. It, it stunned me every time I would look at a guitar. So it, it always seemed like, well, that's, you're not good enough for that. Wow. But then when I, when my sister uh, came home with Led Zeppelin too, and I heard that record, especially Heartbreaker. And when I was about 11 or 12, uh, that was it. I had to play the guitar. And then as fate would have it, my friend uh, sold me a guitar he had for $5 and that kicked things off for me. But obviously, my perspective of recording was greatly enhanced once I started working with Frank and I was in, you know, I, I would watch him very carefully. He, he showed me how to edit tape. Once I learned how to edit tape, uh, that was it. The, the, the first thing I bought when I had any money was uh, a four-track, TIAC four-track tape recorder. And I just recorded everything, everything, everything. And it was in a little apartment in, in Fairfax down in Hollywood. But then uh, right after Frank, that's when I built Stucco Blue. And I had just saved enough to put a down payment on a house in Silmar. And there was a tool shed out back. 
And I basically built it out. And it took me five months and it was great fun because I liked the building too. And then I started to record Flexible. And then Passion and Warfare, some of Passion and Warfare was recorded there and some of uh, and some of Alcatraz and some of uh, Dave Roth. Wow. Skyscraper. Yeah. Crikey, that's incredible. In terms of Flexible then, I mean, you released that on your own record label. You started your own record label instead of signing a, a crap deal with a, a standard company. I mean, that's a pretty bold move again for someone who's, who's fairly young who didn't have a big back catalogue behind them. Um, how did you come to that decision? And did you ask friends in the business for advice and that kind of thing around that? Well, I had no real expectations. And the idea of recording a record, I knew I knew I wanted to record. I was recording. I was recording tons and tons of nonstop recording. But the idea of releasing it and trying to trying to get a record deal and release it, I just didn't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just didn't want to go out and would you release my record? No, please. You know, it's just the music seemed too personal to, for, for, I didn't want to be subjected to anybody else's decision about anything. You know, um, I just felt in a position of vulnerability if I had to depend on a record company. I wasn't desperate at all. I had no uh, desperation to be famous or successful. I just wanted to play the guitar and record these great, these crazy melodies and songs. And the idea of like writing music, recording it and listening to it, that was enough, you know, but then I had all this material and I had flexible and I thought, I wonder if I could, you know, get this printed up so I could send it to some friends. And that's when the Eva Tone Flexi Disc came into my life. And that's just like one of those little plastic, yeah. flimsy. Yeah. Bendy one. And there was a company one. called Eva Tone and they made them. And I thought, well, I know I'll be the first one to release a record on an Eva Tone Flexi Disc. And I started to look into it and there was a lot of limitations to it. And then I thought, well, what the heck? Let me let me try to see if somebody will release this. And I started shopping it around. And there was one label enigma and they were willing to release it and the only reason they were willing to release it was because i was a ex zappa musician mm-hmm. i i ended up getting a deal from them and when i read the deal i was just stunned you know they it was like a ten thousand dollar advance and uh they would own the record and they'd give me 25 cents a record and i had to they had to recoup the ten thousand dollar advance from my 25 cents wow. <laughs> And I'm like, what? Is, this is what? Okay, they see, you know, they saw me coming, some stupid kid. And I took it to an attorney, my attorney, and he said, "No, Steve, this is a conventional record deal, and this is a good one. They're offering you an advance. Most people in your position, they wouldn't offer an advance." I said, "Yeah, but then they own my record." And I goes, "Yeah, that's what they do. This is, you know, and twenty five cent." He goes, "Yeah," and I said, "Fuck that," and I just said no, and. uh Cause it didn't feel right to me, you know, like I'm not gonna, why would, why should they get so much more? You know, there's always been another kind of stumbling block in me. And it, it was always on an economic level. I could never understand why anybody would get paid more than me for my work. And they never have not in my career. You know, I, I've always made sure that managers, agents, uh, a- anybody, I get paid the most 
the end. And if it doesn't work out that way, I just don't do it because it's something, it's just, it makes sense. Now, of course, there's situations, there may be situations where there's a lot of other people involved and always my desire for that, you know, for getting paid the most for my work is that of fairness, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's my work. And um, so I did something kind of outrageous. I decided to bypass, I decided to start my own label. I was 22 years old, you know, because I just started to look behind the curtain, you know, and I'm thinking, well, how do labels work? And the only thing we had to go by back then was like the yellow pages. There was no internet, there was no computers, nothing. Uh, but we figured it out. And um, I noticed that labels, uh, they have a great function. They pay for everything. And they give you the money to make the records and then they take the record and they, it becomes part of their equity because labels run great risks, you know, and that's how they build their equity by owning the masters. And, and then what they, I'm sorry. And then what they do is they sell, they manufacture the, the records. And these were all vinyl back then and some cassettes, uh, they manufacture the records and then they sell the records to a distributor and the distributor puts it in the stores. The distributor goes around to all the stores and says, Hey, you want to buy the?" So that was something I learned. And I just thought, well, why don't I go to distributors instead of labels? And I did every distributor I called would say, no, we don't, we don't take product from artists. We take product from labels. So I started a little label. It cost me $12.50. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> I just went downtown, filed the paper, and, you know, had this little label. It, did, it was nothing. You know, it was an envelope. <laughs> and I found a distributor that was willing to release it because he was a guitar head, Cliff Coltrary at Important Records. And he uh, offered me $4.10 a record. And I retain the rights to the record. Nobody was taking it. And I said, well, yeah, you know, and he, he, he saw, he took a thousand and that was a lot of money to me, you know, $4,000. And then he took another thousand and then another thousand, then another thousand. Then, then the attitude song got into guitar player magazine and that was it. I mean, now he's taking 10,000, you know, and then he, the, the record was distributed through their partner overseas. And then when CDs came out, I retained the same kind of distribution deal. So instead of getting on a good conventional deal, 50 cents a record, a CD from a label, I was getting $7.50. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And w- within the, the period of years, it sold like 400,000 copies. Wow. That was crazy for, it was just such a, a, a windfall. And I never really, um, I, I, I mean, I like money, but it never really, I, I, I was never one of these guys that went out and bought a lot of things, except m- musical gear. I, I never really was into, well, I never did drugs or waste my money on cars. And, you know, I just wanted to play my guitar and record 
And that's what I did. Incredible. Uh, just moving on a little bit then, um, I spoke recently with uh, Graham Bonnet and he spoke very, very highly of you. He said you were amazing oh, and he remembers telling his parents that he's got a guitar player in who plays the guitar like it's a piano and all that sort of stuff. And what was your memories <laughs> of your time with Graham and, and with Alcatraz? Well, it started out kind of where um, Frank had basically disbanded the band, got himself a synclavier and started working on that. So I wanted to go out and start doing some things because I couldn't uh, understand in my head how I was going to put a solo band together and go out there. So I thought it would make more sense to to join an established band. And uh, when Ingve Malmsteen hit the scene, he blew us all away. I mean, he floored us. And when he was leaving that band, I thought, well, you know, there's opportunity. And I auditioned for the band. I didn't think I was going to get the gig because I didn't sound anything like Ingbe. <laughs> uh, but I really liked the guys. You know, they, they were really good guys. And Graham was, Graham was, uh, he had a great sense of humor, you know, and he was just very kind of, uh, it, it, it was my first opportunity to be in the band, with, be in a band with somebody that was European. Yeah. So that was great. But when he would sing, I just couldn't believe it. This, the, the power that came out of his voice, out of his mouth, it was, it was pretty stunning, you know, because I, I had before that I had never been involved with a singer like that. Yeah. So everything was kind of new, new, new. And it was, it was really good for me because uh, the guys trusted me because I was very hands on and uh, I could write, you know, I wrote the music. And I liked working with Graham, you know, he, he, I'd come up with the music and he would put the melody and the, the lyrics. And like I say, he was a powerhouse singer mm -hmm. and really great sense of humor. Fantastic stuff. And in terms of uh, lead singers and, and legendary singers, another one came along not long after, did it? Diamond Dave Lee Roth. I mean, he was leaving one of the world's biggest rock bands at the time and he came back with a solo record and, and a solo band and that sort of thing. And you were part of that band behind him. Now, um, obviously, with your background with, with Zappa and you've done a solo record you're then with Alcatraz. How did the recording and the writing process come for Freedom and Smile? I mean, was it a collaborative thing? Did you get to put your ideas across as well? Well, yeah, my ideas were being depended on because I was the guitar player and Dave does, you know, he doesn't write guitar parts, <laughs> you know, so I, it was very, uh, it was very cool because throughout my teenage years, I was a, a teenager in the seventies mm -hmm. and I was really into rock music, Led Zeppelin, Queen, Deep Purple, you know, all that really good. And then progressive rock. So I had the rock and roll thing in my soul so to speak you know white boy from new york italian rock and roll so it was always there in me so when dave roth came along it was uh, an opportunity to kind of stretch that rock and roll muscle and we kind of resonated well because he has kind of a bizarre sense of quirky humor and so do I, you know, we're, we're both kind of kooky in a way. So I, it worked, you know, like something like Yankee Rose with the talking guitar. I mean, sophisticated rock stars don't do stuff like that, I, I, I suppose, you know, <laughs> it's just too, too corny.
but it was um substantiated by some bad assery you know playing from the whole band you know the energy that the band created we were just we felt in you know indestructible and uh dave obviously he depended on his band to come to him with music that he can then approve or disprove and then the stuff he liked he'd write lyrics and melodies to kind of like graham mm -hmm. so yeah that was that that was fantastic because not only did i have the freedom to play anything i really wanted i had to push myself to go beyond my even beyond my own vision so to speak so having i'll say the shadow of edward mm -hmm. hanging over me you know i i i didn't feel pressure because if i would have felt pressure it would have meant i was competing with edward and that's you can't do that that's foolish you can't yeah. compete with edward <laughs> you know so i was kind of i was when i was making uh those records with dave i was very at ease very uh if they were very enjoyable i loved getting in the studio and knocking out those guitar parts i didn't know what people were gonna think I, I i can't control that i just knew that i had an opportunity to push it you know to pu push the bar and I just did my best to do that. And I enjoyed it. We had a great time. Yeah. Touring with Dave Roth was, man, that was fantastic. <laughs> Obviously, you worked with, with Frank Zappa before that and Alcatraz and things like that. But in terms of Dave Lee Roth, I mean, his his level of fame at that stage was was absolutely massive, wasn't it? And the album you worked on, Eatman Smile, was a massive commercial hit. So how did that kind of resonate with you? Was, was that something that you'd, it sat nicely with you, the kind of big commercial success that came with all that? Well, that kind of success affects people differently. Sometimes you don't even realize it's happening as you're going through it. At least that was the case for me. With Frank Zappa, if you leave, if you play with him and you leave his band, you got to go find a gig. It's not like you all of a sudden become somebody that's sought after. You know, you put your time in and it's a great gig. But joining somebody like Dave Roth's band, that's different. You're now a part of a group that is a personality that fits into a field where now you're known. Yeah. And especially if the guitar behind the voice of Dave was Edward Van Halen, and all of a sudden, who's this? Who's the guitar behind the voice now? We have to see how it sits with us because we're so used to Edward and Dave. So the recognition and the, the attention that was paid to me at that time that Eat em and Smile came out was big. I think, you know, it's, I say big, but it was just, it was in a small sliver of the music community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rock and roll, you know? And plus we were in the basement in Dave's basement for like, uh, some, some, maybe a year and a half and it just, writing and jamming and then finally we went to record and during all this period there was stuff going on in the outside world but i wasn't a part of it you know i mean as far as what was going on in the press what was what is dave roth doing everything was kept very secret and um i was just going into a guy's basement and playing and then we went into the studio and recorded it was kind of like when i made crossroads 
I was just kind of going into the studio and filming and then you go home and you are a normal person. And then all of a sudden it comes out and everybody sees it. And then you go out and people are like, Hey, there you are, you know? And uh, you're like, it takes an adjustment. It was an adjustment because it was, it was kind of, it was interesting at first, you know, especially with crossroads because you can make hit records till you're blue in the face, but make be in one hit movie <laughs> you know, and just have a little part. And Hey, there's that guy, you know, <laughs> every place you go. Uh, so that took an adjustment. It was fun. It, it was never my, my fame with those bands or my recognition with those bands was never so much that I couldn't lead a normal life, okay. you know, <laughs> but it was really nice to be recognized for your uh, contribution because I started reading some nice things about uh, what I had played on Edom and Smile and the way I played. I felt accepted, you know, I, I felt well. Um, supported in that role with Dave, you know, so I was very content and, and happy uh, with what I had done, what I had contributed. Was it great? I, I don't know. I just know I did the best I could. And it was just so nice when it was not rejected. <laughs> complete opposite absolutely and and then you, you obviously Eman Smile Skyscraper came out and then and then I, th I think I read that you'd left because you're wanting to pursue your own solo work and, and work on stuff that you've been working on for a long time but then the offer came to join Whitesnake and now was that just too good an opportunity to turn down at the time? Yeah um, I had finished the Skyscraper tour before I joined Dave Roth I was working on Passion and Warfare because it's still my fascination for recording and especially this this brand of music in my mind. You have to honor your creative impulses or you slip into depression. And I had to honor them. And at that point, it meant turning my back on rock stardom to create passion and warfare. In my mind, that's what I was doing. I was surrendering my career. Because the music for Passion and Warfare was, I knew it was very different. It wasn't yeah. Dave Roth. It wasn't White Snake. It wasn't anything uh, that I had heard, you know, that, that you could point to and say, hey, that that's like um, Blow by Blow by Jeff Beck. Mm, nothing. Uh, or Surfing with the Alien. I mean, it, all of those records, you can't com really compare them to each other. So Passion and Warfare was part of that because... It was a um, authentic offering from my inner ear. But then I couldn't understand how I was going to go out and tour it yeah. because it was one record. It was a very dense record, very complex in a sense. And I didn't I, I was always com more comfortable with having a front man and just being the guitar player. I didn't know how I'd be able to negotiate standing in front of a stage playing instrumental guitar music, you know, and the, the White Snake gig was on the radar right at the exact same time. So I thought, well, it would make much more sense to tour with Whitesnake and make a record with them. And, uh, you know, for the momentum of that other side of my career. 
And lucky for me, I really liked the music of Whitesnake. Uh, back then, the, uh, the, their Whitesnake album that sold 25 million copies, you know, it, it came out and it was a great record. And I just love great singers. And Coverdale was a monster. I mean, come on, you know, I watch that guy get on stage every night and deliver like a boss, you know? So I thought, yeah, man, I want in. And it was great. I when I got into the band, the, all the music was written and recorded for the for the slip of the tongue record, and I I just had to put the guitars on it. And there was an, there was another really great group of guys. If anybody was difficult, it was me. You know, <laughs> I, I was a bit of a prima donna. I um I came from Dave Roth, and with Dave Roth, you learned you learn certain things. Uh, you know how to navigate the business and uh navigate the magazines and the press and things like this and plus i had passion and warfare out and it was it was going it was blowing up while i was touring with white snake so uh yeah you know we did i did the slip of the tongue and that we did a huge huge tour and it was fantastic. Uh, at the end of it, David uh, was going through some personal things. You know, he was going through a divorce. And so he disbanded everything. But I, I knew that just instinctually, I'm, of course, you don't. I didn't know for sure. But I kind of felt that I'd do a record and a tour with them. And I'd, I'd have to return to the quirky music that was in my head. And I did. <laughs> And obviously, passion and warfare. You've spoken about. Um, I have to touch on sex and religion as well. It's one of my one of my good friends. It's one of his favorite albums of all time. Uh, I love the mix of the heavy and the light on there. And how did you go about approaching making the record then, on the back of the success of Passion and Warfare? Well, I still kind of felt like I wanted to have a singer, a lead singer, and I started looking for one. And it was it was difficult, but Relativity Records, who I was signed to at the time, sent me a tape. And one of them was of Devin. Yeah. And he was a teenager at the time, even. And I couldn't believe when I was when I heard his voice because I needed a singer. So I contacted him and, and that's how we hooked up. And he came in to visit me. And man, he was bizarre. Uh, but he was extremely talented. Not bizarre. Um bizarre isn't the right word. He was funny and absolutely incredible singer. And I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to put a super group together and go out there and uh, create a record that had more accessibility than Passion and Warfare, but had um, vocals and also some compositional elements. So it wasn't like straight ahead rock and roll. Metal, heavy, heavy metal was just coming in. And I was being influenced by that through Devin. So some of the stuff was very, very heavy, yeah. but it was melodic. And I finally had a singer that I could uh, work with. So I built, we, we, I mean, if you listen to that record, there's oceans of vocal harmonies and, and things like that. And Devin was uh, great to work with in the studio because he was eager and he would, uh, he was patient, you know, he didn't need a, you know, a five-star hotel and, but he was also incredibly talented 
in his own right. And that was kind of uh, squelched in my band because I just needed him as a singer, you know? So I, I never really, I didn't know how brilliant he was as a creator, um, a musical creator, because I didn't allow it basically a little bit here and there, you know, but I had my vision and I, I had, I wanted, I knew what I wanted to do and we collaborated on some things, but it wasn't until later when Devin started making his solo music that I'm like, whoa, I didn't know that was there, you know, and because he is, in my book, a bona fide genius. He's as brilliant as they come. Uh, but we did a tour and it had its moments, you know, um, Devin uh, was always entertaining. I can tell you that <laughs> you never knew what he was going to do. He was unpredictable and he was bold and he was, uh, did I say unpredictable? <laughs> I think you did. Yeah. And, and he would just do these crazy things. So it was constantly entertaining. I knew it was frustrating for him because he had so much to offer and it was bubbling inside of him and he was trapped in the Vi cage, you know, and doing music that he, you know, maybe he does it not necessarily what he would do, but uh, maybe it's a good sport about it. And I realize I'm taking up a lot of your time here, Steve. So well, we'll just move on to your guitar as well. I mean, it's an iconic part of you and, and, and what you are, your identity. I mean, um, the, the famous story was people were looking for you to 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 be their brand, to face their brand, use their guitars. And you basically said, look, I want these requirements. If you can come back to me with these, then I'll go with you. And Ibanez came back and they responded the best. Is, is, that, is that kind of right? Yeah. What happened was um, working with Frank, I realized if you want something, you can just build it. Or if you want to change something, you just change it. So it was kind of sacrilegious to alter uh guitars like if you had a les paul or a strat you don't drill holes in it and do it but frank did that so i thought well uh, there were certain things certain aspects about conventional guitars that i like but they were there was limitations like i liked strats but i wasn't crazy about the sound that you know and the single coil pickups weren't rock and roll for me and I didn't like that it only had 22 frets and you couldn't. So, and the, the Les Paul, I loved Les Pauls, but they didn't have whammy bars. So I just decided to go to this little music shop and design a guitar for me. And it, it was very naive, very innocent. And I had no expectations of it, uh, of anything happening with it except for me. Hmm. Uh, but it really uh, had some creative, innovative things worked into it. And I didn't know. I just said, I want 24 frets on a Strat style body, I, you know, that was unique at the time. And the cutaway should be like this so I could reach the notes. It's so, it seems so stupid to me that they would make guitars with cutaways and frets, but you can't reach them. Nobody wants to shake up the, you know, the, the <laughs> apple cart. So I'm like, no, you got to cut it away. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, the pickup configuration was unique uh, because it would split coils in certain positions. I didn't I didn't know any of this. I would just say, hey, can you make it do this? It had a floating tremolo. And this was the first time they existed like that because the Floyd had just come out and uh, I wanted to be able to pull way up on the, the, the whammy bar. 
And I just looked at it and I realized there was just some wood in the way. So I hacked it out. And that was like the first floating uh, bridge. So I had this guitar and I had four of them made. And then I, when I joined Dave Roth's band, a lot of the guitar companies were interested in having me endorse their guitars. But, you know, I said, well, thanks, but I got this one. And then they said, well, we'll make it for you. So I thought, well, that would be convenient if I had a company making me the exact guitar that I designed and that I liked. But all the guitars that these companies, I said, I sent out the design. I said, well, make me uh, this guitar. And inevitably, and I said, whoever makes the best one, I'll use. And inevitably, they'd send me back their guitar with with my name on it. You know, like uh, a lot of times signature series guitars for a guitarist are the brand's standard guitar with a couple like a certain fret wire, a certain kinds of pickups in it. It's not a reconstruction of the entire guitar. That didn't become popular until late, more later. And the gem was one of the one of the first, you know, because it was a whole rebuild. Yeah. Because even when Ibanez sent me, when I sent them the 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 gem, I said, "Make me this." The first thing they gave me was this. They did the same thing the other companies did. They gave me their guitar, their their idea of what I would like, and I'm just I hated it. I'm like, why do why give me that guitar? It's just like. It has nothing to do with what I want. But then Ibanez said they got it. They're like, okay, we better make what he wants. And they made the gem. And I thought it was fantastic, you know. And now I had this company making this guitar. And then they said, well, we'd like to make this for other people. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> well, it, you know, okay, but. And then you work a deal. And the deal I worked was also unprecedented. And uh, everybody, it worked great for everybody, you know, the fans, the people that liked the guitar, it kind of struck a nerve that was great for Hoshino Ibanez, it was great for me. And it's been a lovely, amazing, creative relationship, prosperous, abundant for, we're going to be rolling on 40 years pretty soon. Incredible. Yeah, it's a great relationship. It's one of those things in the music, in, in, in business in any business you're in, it's so nice to be able to look back at these very long relationships, fruitful, uh, enjoyable, trusted, uh, yep. creative, trusted. And I have a lot of them. It's nice. And uh, obviously, you, you kept busy for many, many years. You've always done different pro like projects, released many albums. You've, you're always doing your master classes. There's the touring, that sort of thing. And I think you've been on the road in in Europe and South America recently. And you've got a tour across North America, haven't you? Coming across the states next month. So tell us about yeah, that. What can people expect from from these concerts? Well, um, this tour started. Uh, we kicked it off to in support of the Inviolate record. Uh, Inviolate is my last. Uh, instrumental studio record yeah it's one of the uh, it, 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 the record came out uh, a lot better than i was expecting it there was it was received very well another blessing you know and um we kicked off this tour last summer and i really wanted to do a comprehensive world tour i've done i've done a bunch of them and they take me to all corners of the world and we did a first European leg in Western Europe. And then we did a full on American leg in all the main 
you know, main cities and stuff. And then we went back and did Eastern Europe. And then we just finished Latin America. And now we go out and we're doing a, in a couple of weeks, we do another run of America. And then we go to Asia and I've got uh, 10 shows in China. Uh, they, they tell me I'm the, the, the first uh, artist to go into ma- mainland China on tour. Uh, that many shows, which I love doing that. And then we're, um, we used to, you know, I used to go to Russia all the time. Uh, unfortunately can't do that now. Uh, but then we, you know, kind of work our way down through Asia, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Japan. Uh, then we go to Malaysia and Indonesia, you know, Kuala Lumpur, Singapore, Jakarta, um, Vietnam. And then, we are in Australia and New Zealand. None of this announced because it can change. Yeah. Where this is what what we're I'm planning. When it, it, nothing is written in stone until we actually make an announcement. So I'm just kind of giving you preliminary thoughts, and then after that, um, it's the Middle East. I'm trying to get to places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Uh, we may have offers from Egypt. Africa, India, Tel Aviv. So this is what I'm hoping for. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of, you know, in the works. And then there's, uh, then it's Christmas. And then it's G3 in America for a little bit. And then it's, uh, Joe and I are talking about uh, going out and touring together. And then there's some other things, you know, so it, it, there'll be a lot of touring, and which is nice because I, I really do enjoy touring. Well, you've got so much in the pipeline, still not confirmed yet. What's the best way for for people to keep in touch with you and find out when these things do land and do get confirmed? Oh, um, uh, my Instagram, my social media, uh, my website, vi.com. You know, same same suspects that most artists have. Lovely stuff. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Steve. I've loved this last hour or so. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And I just want to say that um, I really enjoyed this uh, touring on this record and all the all the folks that have come to the shows. You really you really got me, man. You know, they've just been they've risen the bar. They've been so supportive. We really have a great time. And uh, I want to thank them. And, And thank you. There you go. The brilliant Steve Vai there. What a guest. What a joy to speak with. I do hope you enjoyed that one. So that's it for me and this week's big interview show then. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app so you get all the episodes when they're released. Please leave Vintage Rock Pod a five-star review as well on whatever podcast app you use. It really does make a big difference. And look for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube as well. Just subscribe, the big red button. Hit it now. Go. Anyway, until next week then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.